This morning's reading is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 11. That's Ecclesiastes 1, starting at verse 1. <coughs> the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors for which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its filling of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which we can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of people of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. We just thought we'd find the nicest, most uplifting reading in the whole of the Bible for you this morning. Don't worry, it gets better, I can assure you. Uh, for those of you who are guests, you might like to know that we're um, partway through a year-long initiative that we've grandiosely called the Year of Biblical Literacy, hence the easel and the photograph, uh, commonly known as Yobble. We're reading the Bible together uh, properly, perhaps, perhaps for the first time in community, and we're in this little series at the moment where we're looking at what's called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, literature that is written actually in a timeless way. It speaks to every generation about what it is to be human, about how to live well. It talks about things like ethics, and morals and virtue, what is good and right and true. And Ecclesiastes forms part of that wisdom literature, although, as you will see, it has its own style and um, aims. Now, I don't know what you would say if I was to stop you, perhaps in mid-conversation, say, look, just tell me, what is the meaning of life? What would be your answer? If I was to go into the street and stop a whole load of people and ask them that question, we'd get a whole plethora of answers. I was in Ikea yesterday with two of my children, and I found myself asking that question. <laughs> like, I think the entire city of Birmingham decided to go to Ikea at the same time. We had to queue to get into the car park. It was that busy. And uh, if you've been to Ikea, you'll know that it's, uh, it's, they're, they're incredible at what they do. They know exactly what they're doing. It's a time warp. Uh, so so you, you kind of come out like six days later, going with all this stuff you didn't want, um, having eaten 15 meatballs and a plate of chips. It's a, it's a genius product. 
What's the meaning of life? Ecclesiastes, I would suggest, actually gives us that. Don't be put off by that phrase, everything is meaningless. There's a point to that, which we'll come to in a moment. Just so uh, those of you who are tracking this this year-long thing uh, need to know that Ecclesiastes um, opens with this phrase, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Commentators aren't entirely sure exactly who wrote Ecclesiastes. They're not entirely sure whether there's actually an author and a teacher. So the author is kind of writing up the teaching of somebody else. That's the view I hold. I think that makes the most sense. In Hebrew, the word for teacher is the word koalet, uh, and it's literally someone who gathers people together. So the idea is that this teaching gathers you together and says, let's have a conversation about life. Uh, it's possibly that it's, it's possible it's King Solomon. Some would say it is, some would say probably not. It's more likely to be an Israelite who down the years uh, kind of summarized lots of teaching, put it together into a Solomon-like, Solomon-like uh, persona and format to give it some credibility. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. What matters is what it says. And what it says is everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This teacher's voice that we hear throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to think about life. What is the meaning of life? What's going on? He actually, as we'll see, is trying to disrupt and provoke and wake us up from the kind of slumber of just going with the tide of culture just assuming that life is what everyone else thinks it is, what our culture around us makes sense of. Is life just about acquisition of wealth, a bigger car, a nicer house, security in your pension pot, or is it actually something more beautiful? And we have this phrase over and over again in the scripture, It's this word hevel. That's the word that we get translated as meaningless. He he says over and over and over again, everything is hevel. Most English Bibles translate that word meaningless, but actually it's not a good translation. It doesn't really get to the heart of this beautiful word. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke or mist. It's this idea uh, that life is like vapor, like mist. It's a metaphor that's used 38 times in this book. And the teacher, as far as he's concerned, says everything, everything under the sun is hevel. It's like vapor. It's like mist. Rugby. So, like objections already. Coffee, another objection. Career, art, music, science, philosophy, wealth, cars, motorbikes. (laughs) Extending your house, tax returns, pension funds, clothes, Apple computers. It's all Hevel, he says. It's all Hevel. It's all Hevel, it's all meaningless, it's all Hevel. There are two words to this idea of Hevel. The the sense we, we need to get is that life is temporary. It's fleeting. This is your life. 
He says, That's your life. It's Hevel. Here it is again. It's your life. You're watching closely this time. <laughs> Typical. Do you know, I was practicing this this morning. The dog was sat there, the kids were watching TV. I was like, I'm going to nail this. <laughs> this is your life. There it is one moment. There it is. The next. It's just Hevel. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's vapor. It's mist. It's smoke. You can't get hold of it. It's like water. Here it is. It's there. It's in there. It's solid, but it's mist. I won't do you. I won't do you. I won't do Chris's parents. Here it is. It's mist. It's, like, it, it, it's gone. It's here. it's here one minute. It's gone the next. Life is Hevel. I could have so much fun, but I won't. I'll put it down. I'll put it down. <laughs> Life appears to be solid. Life appears to be predictable. Life appears to be something that we have some control over, that we can shape and mould and work to our advantage. But then suddenly things happen and we realise it's Hevel. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's unpredictable. You can't guarantee anything. You can't build with these things. The other meaning for this word Hevel is this idea that it's an enigma. It's a mystery. Life is a mystery. Life is a paradox. You can experience great joy in the midst of suffering. You can be trucking along fine. Everything is going really well. Your job's on form. You're making that promotion. Your kids are doing well. You're happily married. And the next morning, you discover a lump. And before you know it, you're in the doctor's. And before you know it, you're having treatment in hospital. Life is heaven. It's enigmatic. It's paradoxical. And what the teacher wants us to grasp is that unless you see that, you won't approach life in the way that you need to approach life. You will live in a particular way that will ultimately lead to disappointment and suffering and sadness. The teacher wants to wake us up to the reality that life is all heaven. The basic goal is for us to grasp that we try to build meaning and purpose and significance into our lives apart from God. We try to do the things that we do in our own strength, with our own energy. We invest all of our emotion into things that we think we can control, that we think will give us something. The things that we think are going to make us better. So we sink our time and our money and our energy into work. If only I make the cut at work, if only I get that better job, if only I earn more money, then my bank account, then we can buy a house, then we'll have security. When I get that car, I'll get the girl. When I get the girl, I'll be happy. When we have kids, I'll be happy. When we move to the bigger house in the countryside, I'll be happy. Life will all be what I want. And then suddenly we remember, no, those things can be gone. Do you know it's interesting? 25% of people die within 12 months of retiring. It's fascinating. Why? Because they've worked all their life for this stuff, waiting till then to really live, only to find that life is taken from them. Why? Because it's Hevel. Well done. It's really easy this morning. It's the same answer all morning. <laughs> and the teacher 
speaks about Hevel on two levels for us. The first is this level of time and death. There are two poems that, if you like, are at the bookends of the book. So right at the beginning, we have this poem about time, and then right at the end, we have this poem about death. The teacher says we spend our whole life working and achieving because we think that will make our lives meaningful, will give us security. But he says it's Hevel. Because one day, you'll wake up and realize that the world's moved on, that time is not your friend. You know, everything that we do, in a hundred years' time, no one will remember. No one's going to know my name. No one's going to care about the things I sunk my time into. Malvern Hill will still be there. The mountains are there. The sea will still come in and out twice a day. The sun will still rise and the sun will still set. Time marches on and it doesn't wait for you and it doesn't wait for me. And as much as the world tells us we can manage time, we can make the most of our time, you can't. You can only manage yourself in terms of your interaction with time. Time is not on our side. Some of us have less than others left. And so notice this. He says, what do people gain from all their labors? This is verse 3, chapter 1, at which they toil under the sun. Generations come and generations go, he says, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Don't think that time's on your side. Don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow won't come. Life is heaven. Don't fall into the trap of waiting till then and when. Because it never comes. The second poem is this comment on death. And and essentially what he says is that death is the great equaliser. Have you noticed that the one thing that unites us all is that one day we will die? And so it doesn't matter what you achieve in this life, wealth or poverty, good or bad, you will die. Death will eventually get hold of us. It devours the wise and the foolish, he says. Death is a reality and it's closer than we think because life is heaven. We think it's down the line, but it's actually just around the corner. You never know what tomorrow brings because life is heaven. Now, having established those two big depressing reality checks... He then kind of crunches up another gear and he homes in on four things that we do to try to manage our interactions with heaven. He picks out four things, wealth, uh, sorry, pleasure, wisdom, work and wealth. Pleasure, wisdom, work and wealth. These are the four things that in his day he saw people investing their time and energy in in order to try to get meaning and purpose and significance and security. And he's saying, don't bother. Because life is heaven. Those things can't, you can't build your life on those things. And this is really what you see in chapters 2, right through to 11, a comment on these four things. These are the same things that our culture today focuses on, right? These are the same things that we all think about. My guess is that most of us probably think about pleasure, work, and wealth more than wisdom. People live for Friday. They live for their vacation. It's a conversation at the moment. Where are you going on holiday this year? Because when I'm on holiday, then I can really do life. I can relax. 
between now and then, I'm just going to have to work. Well, guess what? Monday always comes around. Every seven days, I noticed. Like, you have to come back from holiday. And how often do you go on holiday and it's not like it is in the magazine? It's not like it was in your head. Like, it wasn't sunny all day. Your kids decided to fight for two weeks. And you found yourself next door to this really rowdy family. You can't live for pleasure, he says. It's Hevel. It doesn't give you anything of any substance. It's there one minute and it's gone the next. Notice he actually acknowledges Proverbs. He is a hat tip, if you like, to the teacher in Proverbs. This idea that, you know, there's a way of wisdom and there's a way of foolishness. He references that and he says, but you know what? Even wisdom is heaven. Why? Have you noticed that you can do all the right things? You can be a good, wise, moral person and still end up screwed by life. Have you noticed that? And have you noticed that some people who don't do the right things end up somehow winning in life? Hello? It's Hevel. It's a paradox. It's an enigma. How unfair is that? He picks on work and career. So many people just work and work and work for the time when. Because when they get there, then... They'll have enough money, they'll have enough importance, they'll have enough status, they'll have enough long-term security for their retirement, and then they get to it, and they find that it's not what they hoped. 50% of men who retire between the age of 60 and 65 go on to have some form of depression within the first two years. Because they get there, and they realise it's heaven. It's an identity crisis, it's a crisis of purpose. And he picks on wealth and possessions. He critiques this obsession with having, that somehow we are what we have, what we wear, what we drive, where we live, which school our kids go to, the labels on our shirt. He says, it's just heaven. Who cares? He says, they don't satisfy. None of those things satisfy you. They don't guarantee you anything. And so we have in the end of chapter 2 these words. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. That's pleasure. I refused my heart. No pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. It's work. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything, he says, was heaven. Well done. A chasing after the wind. Nothing, he says, was gained under the sun. Now, if you go on to read, what he's actually saying is, guys, trust me, I had it all. I had it all. I lived the pleasure. I've road tested that one. Trust me, it doesn't get you anywhere. He says, I've pursued wisdom, and even that turned out to be Hevel. I've worked really, really hard. I've done really well. I became top dog, but that was Hevel. And actually, I had all the wealth in the world, and trust me, that wasn't enough. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And so his comment to us, his teaching, is, in, is out of experience. And what he wants to do is say, guys, those four things, don't build your life on them. They're heavy. They're temporary. They're fleeting. They're enigmatic. They're paradoxical. Don't fall into the trap of trying to manage heaven. 
I love what Rob Bell said about this. He called it vapor management. He says this, most people spend most of their time and energy in vapor management, trying to rearrange and fix their vapor, their hevel, assuming that if they can only get enough of the right kind of hevel in the right order at the right time, then somehow through that they will access a place of peace and calm and satisfaction and fulfillment. And the teacher would say, you never get there. Because it's just vapor. It's mist. How are you doing? I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Come on! We're nearly there. If even wisdom is heaven, not, not meaningless, remember that, that's not the word, but if wisdom is vapor, enigmatic, if even wisdom, the very thing that all the other wisdom literature encourages us to pursue, that then what is wisdom? Maybe, maybe wisdom doesn't work the way we think it should all the time. Maybe we need to get a bigger understanding of wisdom itself. And really, I think that's what the rest of Ecclesiastes is about. Is what does it look like to live well in the midst of heaven? The answer is in all these other verses. And your homework, guys, if you're part of All Saints, is to go and read it. We'll get to it later in our year of reading plan, but have a look now. There's another phrase. Some of you will know the book well enough to know this phrase that, again, appears over and over again, and it's this phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. Under the sun. And what the teacher wants us to grasp is that everything that is hevel is that which is under the sun. That's a euphemism or, or language, poetry language to try to get us to realise that, that what he's talking about is everything that happens in this life between birth and death. Everything under the sun, he says, is heaven. Everything that is in the realm of the created, that which we create, he says that's everything under the sun and it's everything under the sun that is heaven. So planning Painting, organising, financing, engineering, orchestrating, gardening, cooking. All of those things, ultimately, they turn out to be hevel. The things that we create in a created world, bounded by time and death. Everything under the sun is hevel. So at this point, we might start thinking, ah, I get what he's doing. Because traditional wisdom literature essentially gives you two options. It paints two polar opposites. It gives you a choice. Proverbs is the classic example. You can follow the way of wisdom, or you can follow the way of folly. Wisdom or foolishness. If you go this way, wisdom, well, life will work for you. God will honor you. God will bless you. Things will work out well. Now, the Ecclesiastes writer would say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Let me tell you some stories, and we'd have our own. Or, or you can follow the way of the fool and end up in a mess. But actually, we know people who have been foolish and somehow managed to come out smelling of roses, right? So that's not what's going on here. Ecclesiastes is not somehow creating these two paths and saying, well, you just need to make a distinction and get the, your head around that and you'll be fine. It's not what he's saying. Ecclesiastes confronts the oversimplistic black and white duality of other wisdom literature, which sounds great in theory, but when you road test it in reality, it doesn't work. What Ecclesiastes says is life isn't black and white. It's grey. 
It's grey. It's messy. It's enigmatic. It's Hevel. We're in the hands here of a master teacher who winds us in and gets us annoyed and provokes us. And he does that because he wants to disrupt us. He wants to create dissonance in our life so that we start to go, what? Hey, really? Hmm? Uh, Because then and only then can we be woken up to a bigger truth. Only then can we embrace a better space, a bigger understanding of wisdom. The best teachers will do that. They will annoy you. They'll provoke you. They'll rattle your cage. They'll challenge you. Hopefully, I'm getting a little bit close to that this morning. So you're going, I need to think about my life by the sounds of it. What the teacher wants us to grasp is a more beautiful form of wisdom, a more robust way to do life within the midst of a broken world. And as we read on, we find that the teacher has discovered the key to this. How do you live life under the sun? How do we live our lives, this life, under the sun, in the created realm, bounded by time and death? There are two things, he says. We're going to end with some good news. The first thing he says is you have to accept Hevel. You have to accept that everything is Hevel. Stop trying to manage your vapor. Stop thinking that if you could just do this, this, and this, then. Stop wondering about when that moment's going to come and waiting for when. Because when won't come. Or you might get to when and realize that it's not everything you thought it was going to be. Ecclesiastes is for those of us who've got to the end of that and gone, what? Those moments when we've got what we thought we wanted, we've got to where we thought we needed to be and only discovered, only to discover that that wasn't enough either. Or that it just gets taken away like that. A friend of mine uh, was telling me a story of a friend of his who had saved up for years to buy a particular sports car that he promised he'd treat himself to on his 50th birthday. He got this car. He waited for 15 years. He'd sacrificed his sports car for his children, dads. And eventually he went out and bought this BMW Z something or other. Two days later, someone drove into it and wrote it off. Everything is heaven. We have to come to terms with that. You've got to face that reality. That all your time and energy trying to do these things, you can't guarantee anything. It's not that they're not important, it's just that you can't place too much importance on them. But the second thing to notice, and this is the key, is that the teacher would have us realise that life, the meaning of life, is found not in the created, but in the uncreated, in that which is beyond the sun, in that which is beyond time and beyond death. Six times in the book, always at the bleakest moments, just when you think, oh my goodness, like take me now, he talks about God. And he talks about God with language that's best translated as gift. He says, in all of this hevel, I've discovered there's this gift, and it's the presence in the heaven of the uncreated, that which is beyond the sun. And he talks about this promise right at the end that 
God is going to bring order to the world, that God is going to bring justice to heaven, that the bad person who did bad things, who got away with it, will face justice, and the good person who did the right things, who lost out, will get justice. The teacher has discovered that the way you make sense of life, the way you live well in this world, is by trusting in the gift of God. And that when you live into that, when you live into the things of the uncreated, that's when you come alive. That's when you find meaning. That's when you find purpose. That's when you find significance. That's when you get security. When we adopt, in other words, a posture of totally trusting God, it frees us to simply enjoy life as we actually experience it, not as we think it ought to be. Because it turns out even our expectations of what life ought to be are heaven. And so notice uh, verse 7 in chapter 9. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. That's one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. For God has already approved what you do. What the teacher is saying to us is, listen guys, when you realise that life is only found in the uncreated, in the creator, you start to realise that all the things that are good in this life are gift. They're grace. But don't try and hang on to them. Don't try and rely on them. Don't try and build with them. Just enjoy them for what they are. Because they are just glimpses, it turns out, of life that's yet to come. And when we stop trying to manage them, but just allow ourselves to experience them and enjoy them, we find a freedom that we would never find anywhere else. When we fall into the trap of believing that when and then, we fall into the trap of trying to manage heaven, manage vapor. But when we let it go, when we enjoy it for as long as we can, but don't worry about tomorrow, which is what Jesus said, we actually realize that life's all gift. It's all a gift. There's nothing else. But of course, Ecclesiastes finishes long before Jesus came. And we now live in the New Testament world, and we look back through the lens of Jesus Christ, and we read Ecclesiastes slightly differently because we now know that one has already come who will bring justice to the world. Notice this phrase here. This is uh, the instruction. Fear God and keep his commandments. But notice verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment. We know that Jesus came and that he enacted true justice through his life, death and resurrection. And we have in Jesus not someone who came into the hevel, the grey, to tidy it all up, make it black and white again. No, we have someone who embraced hevel. He lived in it and lived through it and leads us out of it. And he says, guys, it's gift. It's all grace. 
It turns out that wisdom is actually a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And he invites us not to manage vapour, but to live in and through him. To allow the fruit of his spirit to shape and form us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that live and come from beyond the sun, gifted to us, which we really enjoy. It's those things that we build with. It's those things that we receive and then share. It's those things that allow us to live at the divine intersection of the created and the uncreated, of heaven invading earth. Jesus says, find yourself in me, because it turns out he is the way, the truth, and the life. And anything we need by way of status, security, significance, and purpose, he gives it to us. He says, you're my children, you're my co-heirs, you're my brothers and sisters, what's mine is yours. Now go and live freely into the world, not trying to manage the vapour, but trying to serve those for whom life is heaven. Trusting that one day we'll enter into a world where there is no more heaven. And it's a life of faith and trust. And so Jesus said this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given you as well. Let's stand together. Uh, Here at All Saints, we we believe that when, when we speak about these things and we talk about them and we try to engage with them that God is present and present in a particular way by his Holy Spirit and for some of you this morning that will be like what is he talking about I understand that but just please allow us to do what we would normally do and feel free to join in or sit out but we want to make space and some time now for the God of the uncreated world beyond the sun to invade the midst of our heaven. All of us, right now, I'm sure, regardless of where our faith is at or not, would recognize that so much of our life is heaven. Unpredictable. Volatile. Fragile. Some of us will feel like death is closer than we'd like. Some of us are living in disappointment. Some of us are trapped in it, actually. Some of us are struggling with the reality of life. It's not fair. And the Father who loves us longs to help us, to 
discover that the way on and the way through is not by better vapour management. But by actually opening our hands and saying, God, only you bring meaning to meaninglessness. We don't need to gain wisdom. We need to trust Jesus and let him guide us through it. So if you're up for this, if this is your church, then I'm sure you are. If you're not, as I say, just feel free to observe. I'd love you just to open your hands and close your eyes. Those two things aren't magical in themselves, but closing our eyes lets us focus. Opening our hands just gives us that space with God and a recognition that I, I, can't, I can't handle and grab hold of it. I'm empty-handed. I'm dependent. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, now just to pour yourself out upon us. To fill us with life from beyond the sun. Some of us are feeling really tired all of a sudden. Because vapor management is exhausting. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Some of us, just in this moment, as God ministers to us, need to say, God, I'm sorry that I've tried to manage the hevel of my life. Just let it fall out of your hands and let him give you life from beyond the sun. Fresh hope. Fresh promise. receive its rest and its peace it transcends surpasses all understanding cuts through heaven tugs our hearts in the direction of the future it reminds us that whatever this life might bring there will come a day when everything will make sense between now and then, the only rock we build on is the rock of Jesus Christ. Sand doesn't do it. And you know, it's not a sign of failure to get to the end of your tether, to get to the point where you go, oh my goodness, it's all heaven. It's actually the start of freedom and of being able to interact with life in a way that brings you joy and allows you to bring others joy. We don't then find ourselves saying, everything is heaven, oh my goodness. We find ourselves going, everything's heaven. 
But it's okay. Because Jesus Christ is alive and he reigns. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He lives beyond time and he conquered death. He says, it's me that brings meaning to your life. Trust me. So for some of us, it's a fresh moment now to say, yeah, yeah. receiving. There's no rush. It's lots of time. Some of us, we need to lay down those two words, when and then. Just need to just stop saying that. Stop believing that. not about when and then. We need to replace it with two different words. It's now and him. Right now. And just him.